Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello, good friends. Good to see you again on this Friday morning, September 1, first day of the Labor Day weekend. And welcome to our weekly Reporters Roundtable on the Bill Press Pod. Well, Hurricane Adalia stole the headlines this week as it roared through Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina, but Tropical Storm Donald continued to make a lot of news. A judge set the trial date for charges against Trump related to January 6th for next March, March 4, 2024, one day before Super Tuesday. But the district attorney of Fulton County, Georgia, may schedule a hearing for Trump and his co-defendants in Georgia as early as this October, and that trial will be televised. Trump, meanwhile, begged Republicans in Congress to start impeachment hearings against President Biden, which Speaker Kevin McCarthy seems inclined to do, providing he can round up enough Republican votes. And Joe Biden delivered on something Democrats have been promising for decades, letting Medicare negotiate with pharmaceutical companies over the price of prescription drugs, starting with 10 drugs that Biden announced this week. Whoa, that and all a lot more for today's panel. So let's jump in. Linda Feldman, White House correspondent and Washington Bureau Chief, Christian Science Monitor. Hello, Linda. Welcome back. Hi, Bill. Thanks. Maya King joining us from Atlanta, where she's the politics reporter covering the South for the New York Times. Hello, Maya. Hi, Bill. Thank you for being here. And also a big thank you to Kirk Beto, editor of the National Journal Hotline, joining us today from Nashville. Hello, Kirk. More, Bill. Thanks for having me. Good to have you back as well. So, um, you know, we've been so consumed with the Republican primary for 2024. Um, but there are two big articles on both the front page of the New York Times and the Washington Post that have nothing to do with the primary. So for a change of pace, let's start there. Linda, to begin with, mm. Clarence Thomas yesterday released papers showing that, in fact, he has been the recipient of some luxury trips from this by this uh, Texas developer, Harlan Crow. three luxury trips last year. Samuel Alito also released papers shows reports showing that he'd been had some gifts from some universities and a big fishing trip up to Alaska. Uh, does this mean anything? Is it is it going to um, uh, result in Congress? Do you think requiring the court to adopt an ethics code? So my reaction to that was, well, we kind of already knew all that, right? So I I sort of feel like we're uh, kind of anesthetized to this kind of news. I mean, the big ProPublica investigation into all of this is what really was the bombshell. And this is just something we already know, essentially. And I, I can't see Congress getting into this. Uh, what do you think, Maya, if um, Sonia Sotomayor 
was the justice who came out and said that she'd been taking all these luxury vacations and luxury trips paid for by people who had some interest in front of the court. Do you think the reaction might be a little different? Well, that's an interesting question. I, I think it, it stands to reason that it could be, but I do remember Sotomayor also finding herself in some hot water when um, I believe the Times might have reported this, that her staffers and other allies of her had actually been sort of lobbying um, a number of bookstores and other places to right. sell yep. and market yep. her children's book. Um, and then it was also revealed that um, uh, several other Democratic justices had also had their own travel paid for. So I think that what this case gets at is just the fact that while um, Clarence Thomas may be a repeat offender here or someone who has definitely kind of fallen out of um, who, who has broken the rules a number of times, it really does seem to be a problem uh, just across the Supreme Court that you have these folks who are just all powerful and very highly respected in their corners, but are just really using that respect and that influence um, to kind of do whatever they want. And I think that that's certainly become very clear in the last year of coverage of the Thomas case. But I'm curious to see exactly if this will prompt um, action in Washington for other people or just for uh, a more a more standardized approach to how these justices can receive gifts. And Kirk, it's also pretty clear, right, that the justices themselves are not going to do this. No, I mean, uh, I think the disclosures from Clarence Thomas that we're talking about here also included uh, some previously undisclosed bank accounts that were valued at, you know, I think like over a hundred thousand dollars and, you know, who among us has not forgotten about some bank accounts with over a hundred thousand dollars. And, um, <laughs> and it does seem that the incentive structure here for them to self-report this, these, you know, trips, these gifts, this, you know, their, their finances isn't there. And, as we've been talking about here, Congress doesn't seem like there's enough juice here to pass any sort of ethics guidelines here that force these disclosures, nor is there there's arguments that it's not even legal to have this type of oversight. And I've been really curious this last year or so of reporting and more scrutiny on the Supreme Court of, especially in the wake of the, the Dobbs decision leaked to Politico, how reporters are changing their coverage of the Supreme Court to not be as deferential to the justices mm -hmm. and deferential yeah. to this you know mystique of the robes and everything and that's why we're seeing these stories in the times we're seeing these stories in ProPublica that are really bird dogging the justices in ways that i don't think we've seen before yeah no a good point all right linda the other big story on the uh, front pages is mitch mcconnell mm. uh painful to watch when he froze for the second time in the last couple of weeks in front of a group of reporters uh, down in Kentucky th this week. Uh, his Republican senators seem to be rallying behind him, but does raise some serious questions. No, for sure. And I, I was struck by the, um, the, re the report from the attending physician of Congress who, said, who says that McConnell is medically clear to work uh, and he attributed McConnell's, quote, occasional lightheadedness to his recovery from a mar March concussion and, quote, dehydration. I, I mean, it almost reminded me of Ronnie Jackson, uh, the former White House physician, uh, commenting on, on Donald Trump's health. I, you know, mm. I mean, mm -hmm. these episodes with McConnell are, are concerning and obviously, and, uh, 
you know, there is there is a public rallying of of Republican senators behind Senator McConnell, but and reportedly there isn't even discussions behind the scene on who would replace him. But I just don't believe that. I, I don't think he's going to resign from the Senate, but he he could well step down from leadership. I think if it happens again, I think three strikes and you're out, and and something really has to happen. Uh, yeah. In terms of uh, you know getting beyond the, the gerontocracy in, in the Senate, Maya, I guess I want to ask you the related Supreme Court question. I ask you, what if this had happened with Joe Biden? Well, I think the the one thing that I thought about is um, you know Biden immediately came out and said you know had a lot of kind and warm words of support for Mitch McConnell after this happened yeah. and called him yeah. a friend and. I really don't think that Republicans would be as generous if this happened with Joe Biden. Um, and it's just also because there's a running narrative on the right now that, you know, Biden is senile, that Biden, you know, is, is too old for office. And these are even the whispers on the left as well. But I think the right has made it a big part of their 2024 pitch that this is not a president who is actually controlling anything because he's just too old where now you really have to look at everybody, especially in Washington and in the Senate um, and McConnell is the latest example of this, that it's not just it's not just the the 80 year old president. It's it's also the folks in the in the Senate. It's also your own Senate minority leader um, who is seeming to show his age on the national stage now, too. And Kirk, it's uh, even broader than that. Right. I mean, it's um, Joe Biden. It's Mitch McConnell. It's Dianne Feinstein. It's Chuck Grassley. Right. It's- it is. And we're. we're- we're like in the what is the second oldest Congress in history? The only one that was older was the 117th Congress a year ago. Hmm. I mean, it it does raise a lot of questions about the capacity uh, for leader, leadership and their mental acuity. I mean, the two instances we have of McConnell in a little over a month were both at press conferences, and I think there's been a lot of reporting about lawmakers raising questions of if this is how he is like in front of reporters, what has he been like in private right now? To Linda's point, there is a report out there that there might be some sort of, you know, players only meeting to put it in a sports metaphor of uh, Republican senators when they get back to Washington next week. But I'm a hundred percent with Linda. I'll believe Mitch McConnell is stepping down or being forced out when Mitch McConnell steps down or is forced out. Yeah. Um, uh, and we all, you know, wish him well, but it is uh, it is pretty scary. And if it's happened twice in public, as Kirk points out, you do wonder how many times it's happened that we don't that we don't know about. Well, on the other topic that's on the front pages, um, non GOP primary kind of related. Linda, we've been down this road so many times, but we ask the question again: mm. Is the government going to shut down? <laughs> Oh my gosh. So I would, I would have said I would bet yes, just because we're in such a, you know, politically perilous situation. And, you know, maybe Kevin McCarthy has something to prove. He wants to embarrass Joe Biden. But there's this little issue of the impeachment of an of a desire to impeach Joe Biden. And uh, I love the idea that you've got essentially uh, Kevin McCarthy needing to keep the government open so he can impeach Joe Biden, or at least <laughs> launch the inquiry. It's such a fantastic kind of, um, you know, game theory 
uh, you know, circular firing squad aspect to government. Um, so yeah, I so it may not right, and with Marjorie Taylor Greene leading the charge. Yeah, I mean, no, McCarthy said that this week on CNN, uh, warning right the members of the Freedom Caucus. Now, remember, if you shut the government down, you won't be able to to impeach Joe Biden, right? So this is a reason for keeping the government open. Uh, all right. So Maya, uh, Linda mentioned Marjorie Taylor Greene, even though she's sort of uh, McCarthy's chief lieutenant here, uh, she's kind of leading the charge to shut the government down unless she gets everything she wants. Here she is at a town hall meeting down in your state of Georgia. I will not vote to fund the government unless we have passed an impeachment inquiry on Joe Biden. I'm not going to continue to fund the Biden regime's weaponized government. So there should be no funding for Jack Smith's special counsel. And lastly, my red line in the sand has always been, I will not vote to fund a war in Ukraine. So there you go, right? Uh, you have to put start impeachment hearings on Joe Biden, defund the DOJ and the FBI, and defund uh, any support for Ukraine. I think the last time um, that I was on the show, we were talking about how Taylor Greene had emerged as this kind of uh, political actor um, who had just really boosted her own platform within the Republican Party. And then since then, she's also kind of lost some clout with the far right Freedom Caucus actually being, if I remember correctly, entirely yeah. kicked out the Congress reporters. Yeah, correctly. Right. Um, but here's where I think she falls back in line, at least ideolo ideologically, with the far right in Congress, because these folks have been saying and broadcasting for some time their plans to shut the government down or let the government shut down if they don't really get their wishes. And these policy wishes are, are kind of outrageous in a way, like not impeaching the current president, um, you know, not funding the war in Ukraine. Like, I think McCarthy can only afford to lose maybe three or four votes, but you've got many more people than that already ins insinuating their plans to, to let this happen um, if they don't, if they don't get what they want. And so it is interesting. It puts it puts Taylor Green, I guess, back in a position of power. But another person that I'm thinking about, of course, on the 2024 stage is the Repu one of the Republicans in the Senate, Tim Scott, who's running for president, mm -hmm. but also uh, maybe taken off the trail to have to contend with some of this or be asked about it on the trail, exactly how he feels about uh, his colleagues in the House sort of holding up procedural votes and whether he agrees that the president should be impeached. I think there are a lot of questions um, that could be applied also to to the presidential race here. And also just it speaks to, again, how Republicans have totally redefined their approach to policymaking and the dangers of this kind of burn it all down approach to things. Well, it's it's um, not just the 2024 presidential, right? It's 2024, I think, in, impact on 2024 House seats uh, and Senate seats, Kirk. So given that every politician's number one goal, right, is to get reelected, uh, is shutting down the government and impeaching Joe Biden um, a political plus for Republicans running in 2024? Look, I'm, I'm thinking right now a lot about the 18 House Republicans who represent districts that President Biden carried and where they are at. On, yeah. this on these negotiations right now because the list of demands that Marjorie Taylor Greene just outlined, I mean, that keeps you up at night if you're uh, Mike Lawler up in New York, if you're David Valadeo 
out in California. Those are just votes that you just cannot take. Those are positions you really cannot afford to have when you're up in a tough re-election environment with Biden presumably at the top of the ticket again. I mean, it just seems like the whole McCarthy speakership has been defined by him giving more deference to the loudest and most conservative voices in the room and forcing really tough votes on the majority makers here, the people who won in those tough districts, the ones who really gave him that gavel. And this negotiation over a shutdown government system put them in another impossible position again. Right. Um, And, um, you know, you talk about those 18. Remember, we're starting off with a margin of five, right? Right. Because this... Not a lot of room for error here. There's no room for error here at all. Right. Well, um, good job uh, so far, avoiding any mention of uh, Donald Trump or the Republican primary, but we can't avoid it. Let's get into that. Uh, But first, we'll take a quick break here on the uh, Bill Press Pod in today's roundtable and then come back with today's great panel, Linda Feldman, Christian Science Monitor, Maya King from the New York Times and Kirk Beto from the National Journal. And today we want to give a shout out uh, to our sponsors, uh, my union, actually, SAG-AFTRA, who have joined the Writers Guild of America in the strike against the big Hollywood studios. Going on for almost four months now, the studios refuse to budge. It's really getting more critical than ever, not only because so many people and related industries are um, hurting, uh, because of the strike, but also because with the winter season approaching, uh, this thing is either going to get settled now or there will be no new shows in winter, which led the Los Angeles Times yesterday to editorialize against the Hollywood studios saying, hey, people, quote, it's time to surrender and settle this strike and move on. Uh, check out uh, SAG after check out their website at sagaftra.org to find out more about what this strike is all about, and hopefully it will be over soon. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter 
be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And we're back with today's roundtable. Uh, joining us, Kirk Beto, National Journal Hotline Editor, Maya King, politics reporter, based in Atlanta for the New York Times, and uh, White House correspondent and Washington Bureau Chief for the Christian Science Monitor, Linda Feldman. Welcome back, uh, every uh, panelist, and thank you for joining us again today. So it's been um, a week, Maya, since the, a little more, since the first GOP presidential primary debate. Uh, how has the dust settled since last week? Uh, who do you think... Uh, got a little bounce and who benefited, who didn't? Well, I think top lines, the few people who emerged um, with the most conversation, I'll say, were Vivek Ramaswamy, uh, who spoke for some of the longest time on the debate stage. Nikki Haley as well, who boosted her favorables and just made herself more nationally known. Um, and Vice President Mike Pence spoke for the longest time, though I'm not sure if this really changed his standing in the Republican primary, just given the fact that uh, this this is still a primary that's dominated by Trump voters who still don't trust him. Um, and then, of course, to that point, you know, didn't really change the makeup of the primary at this stage. Former President Trump, in all of his indictments and all of the vitriol that he's kind of cast over the Republican primary, still has a 20 to 30 point lead over the entire race and in battleground states as well. Uh, So it gave, I think, Republican primary voters who were interested or eager to see uh, or cast their ballots for a Trump alternative, uh, what their options might be. But, um, you know, all signs, even in polling and my conversations with voters and strategists point to this still being uh, a route for the former Mm -hmm. president. Uh, Kirk, um, Maya did not even mention Ron DeSantis. <laughs> and yet, uh, before the debate, everybody was saying this was going to be his moment to shine. After this debate, everybody would know why he was the alternative to Donald Trump. What's your take? I think that he whiffed. I think he had a great opportunity here, a big national platform that he hasn't really had before to introduce themselves to voters who might not be as plugged in to the day-to-day as uh, the panelists here or folks listening to the reporters roundtable on a Labor Day weekend. No offense <laughs> to the listeners here. But it, it, it was remarkable, not only how DeSantis, I don't think, met the moment, but how his Republican opponents on the stage also didn't treat him like the second option there. They spent most of their time either punching down or sideways at Vivek Ramaswamy, the venture capitalist and political neophyte, who, you know, according to the polling averages of 538 since July, has jumped from about 3% of polls to 10%, which is the highest climb of everybody. Meanwhile, DeSantis in that same time period has fallen from 24% to about 14% in the polls here. And I think the group consensus there of Ignoring DeSantis, you know, he is struggling on his own right now. And instead, punching up Vivek Ramaswamy really said a lot about the state of the DeSantis campaign in his opponent's minds. Right. Uh, Linda, I'd be interested in your take. uh, And certainly Vivek Ramaswamy dominated the debate. He got more time than anybody else, got more attention. Uh, Maybe he was attacked more. Um, But 
I see sort of a mixed mm. reaction to his appearance. What was? What do you think? Uh, definitely. I mean, you had suggested uh, before our our podcast that it was a bad week for Ramaswamy, but I'm not sure I agree. I think when uh-huh. you're this early in the process, when you're one of the dominant to- uh, figures in the mix, it's a good week. I mean, you just you want to get your name out there. He's He's been all over TV. He was on Meet the Press. He was on Sean Hannity. They were they were beating him up, of course. Um, he's been on other more friendly uh, venues, um, and you know he he comes out with these outrageous proposals. He wants to you know abolish the FBI, the IRS, the CDC, on and on and on, and it just causes you to stand up and go, "Wow, what what's he's what's he about?" You know, defund Israel. Um, so, so yeah. we, there's something in there for everybody to love and not love. Um, so I actually think it was a pretty good week for Ramaswamy. Um, but I was struck by the, the poll that Tony Fabrizio, uh, leaked intentionally. Um, he's the, the pollster who used to work for Trump and now he's with the Trump super PAC, MAGA Inc., um, who's, uh, telling Trump world that, Nikki Haley is quote surging uh, toward DeSantis, so her numbers did go up. I think I thought Haley did do very well in the in that debate, um, but but what the the overarching narrative out of Trump world is that it's not just Trump versus DeSantis; it's Trump versus everybody else. So it's in their interest to show that that DeSantis isn't nipping at Trump's heel in any way, and that there are multiple. Uh, contenders for the the, the Trump undercard, um, and honestly, it only it only matters if something terrible happens to Trump and he collapses, passes away, something. Mm. I mean, otherwise, it's, it's Trump, right? Um, Maya, the commentariat generally said after the debate that Nikki Haley uh, came out the best and the strongest. Uh, and um, I do think she had a good week since. Uh, and here's a new line of attack for Nikki Haley uh, that, that she raised this week. Maybe not for the first time. First time I heard it. Well, first of all, a vote for Joe Biden is a vote for Kamala Harris. You know that, and I know that. There is no way that Joe Biden's going to finish his term. I think Kamala Harris is going to be the next president, and that should send a chill up every American's spine. So, Maya, Nikki Haley, she's a person to watch? I think she's certainly someone to keep an eye on. Um, the line of attack around Kamala Harris is not new, but now that she has this larger platform, she's certainly employing it more. Her campaign has uh, certainly telegraphed her as a voice of reason, but also someone who would be, I guess, uh, an, a new kind of candidate in that she would be a woman uh, president for the Republican Party for the first time. But, you know, I think hidden in that message is still... Uh, the fact that while she is a pragmatist, still very conservative and still trying to appeal to this Trump base um, and is also running a campaign, in my view, that with its policy focus, with its focus on pragmatism, uh, with its call to consensus, seems like something out of maybe 2014, 2012 and not a post-2016, post-Trump Republican Party. And so I think it's a question of whether there's even a universe big enough of voters who want to hear that message, um, which is probably why you also see mixed in with all of that, these attacks on Kamala Harris. 
um, Haley was asked about this this week and sort of what her MO is here, whether she feels like she's attacking another woman of color. And she just said that she feels that the vice president is incompetent. And she's also playing on what are likely her own internal polls that reveal that the vice president is not a very popular figure um, still in the minds of Republicans and many Democrats. And so going after her and putting the 2024 race as not only uh, a, a choice between uh, Biden and a Republican, but President Kamala Harris or the, the possibility of that and a Republican president, I think in her mind kind of boosts the chances that she can garner more attention and even more support. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I was thinking, I, I don't remember a recent presidential campaign when the vice president became uh, a political issue. But uh, it, rem- it reminds me more of uh, the 2008 presidential campaign where John McCain and Sarah Palin were running together. Oh, yeah. What am I thinking? Of course. Right. And you, you heard a lot of <laughs> Democrats saying, you know, yeah, you're yeah, yeah. I don't, how old was John yeah. McCain at the time? But, you know, they were saying like you're a 75 yeah. year old heartbeat from President Sarah, Sarah Palin. And that scared yeah. a lot of people. Yeah, yeah, indeed. Good point. Good remi- good reminder. Okay, so Kirk, now you're editor of the National Journal. You're you're making your plans for uh, 2024, like everybody is. Linda is, Maya is, everybody else is. All the editors and publishers. Uh, and this week, a judge in Washington D.C. said, "Okay, we're going to have a trial date on March 4, 2024, which is the day before Super Tuesday." So, uh, I guess my question to you is. What's going to count more in 2024, the campaign calendar or the courtroom calendar for Donald Trump? And how do you deal with it? Well, they are one and the same. I I make a little Google calendar for everyone in our company and everything that I send with primary days, filing deadlines, FEC fundraising deadlines. And now that is all trial deadlines as well. You know, just looking ahead here, just real quick, you know, we could have a Fulton County trial as early as. October, January 15th, we have the Iowa caucuses. February 24th, South Carolina. As you already said, March 4th, we have the D.C. trial. March 5th, Super Tuesday, where 15 states are going to the polls. March 25th, Trump's criminal trial in New York is supposed to start. The May <laughs> yeah. 20th, criminal trial in the classified documents case. And I'm thinking all of this in terms of also what it was this like in 2016. And so I went back and, to, uh, and looked up by May 26, 2016, Trump had uh, clinched the nomination by garnering enough delegates. Now, if we think about it, if we game out this a little bit more, especially with some of the rule changes that these state Republican parties are making to accommodate Trump, you know, you think of California now that if you get more than 50% of the vote on primary day, which is on Super Tuesday, you get all of the delegates, not just a proportion of them. You get all of them if you get over 50%, 169, the highest of any state. That favors Trump in the field right now. That favors Trump right now. We, we could have a scenario, a very real scenario, where you know, there's a split screen of the trial in Fulton County in the morning where Trump is either in the courtroom, he's testifying, his lawyers are there, and then later that night, he wins um, delegates in California. He cleans up on Super Tuesday or something like that. That is going to be a reality that we're going to have to deal with now. And I don't know exactly how we square that or how the voters square that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, I just I think I saw this morning 
that the New York Attorney General's case, the one about financial fraud against the Trump Organization, um, is supposed to go to trial this October. Actually, you know that's not one. That's not a criminal case. It's a civil case. I'll I'll need to add that to the calendar now too. Just add that to the list. But even with all of these legal issues, these indictments, these court dates, and everything, the mugshot even, it's not dampering Trump in the primary. In fact, it seems to be strengthening him. You saw that report that uh, he raised $7 million or something from the mudshot alone. Like this is, I I just don't know exactly how to game this out. Well, Linda, it's not only um, tampering, if you will, Donald Trump's uh, political campaigning, Mm -hmm. right? But it's become the main issue for him uh, in his campaign, here, here's just uh, he releases these videos on Trump so, on social media all the time. Uh, and here's one of the latest. I hope that Republican district attorneys and attorney generals throughout the country are closely watching the tremendous weaponization of justice that is being utilized against me. There's never been anything like it. But you ought to watch. And frankly, it's an eye for an eye or it's fight fire with fire. What they're doing to our country is amazing. So Republicans, I hope you're watching. Eye for an eye, Linda. Oh, my gosh. I mean, this is just, first of all, I mean, we have to just say this This is just so massively unprecedented. We, I mean, who even knows where to go with this? But to me, it also points out the importance of who Trump would select as a running mate. Because just like Joe Biden, we can't, uh, if Trump is you know wins the nomination and and against some odds wins the presidency then his and he's in prison right <laughs> i mean it's this is like political science fiction but if he i mean watching that debate i i was just struck by uh nikki haley frankly i mean th- there's a lot of thinking that he needs to put a woman on the ticket with him uh she has gone against trump uh on a number of occasions, but I, but she's very, a, li- a little bit, right. She's yeah. very flexible. Shall we say she can protect <laughs> Trump. Yeah. She can woo him. And Trump is the same way. People can go after him and then suddenly he forgets all of that and, and he loves them. So we're going to look at who he puts on the ticket and can they govern in the event that he is unable. And I think Nikki Haley's strong uh, debate performance, and she was strong in the sense of a general election candidate, right? I mean, her mm-hmm. position on abortion was right at the general was right at suburban women, who are predominantly pro-choice, and she's pro she's quote pro-life, but she articulated a semi-pro-choice argument about keeping government out of these decisions. Uh, it's interesting on that point, Maya. Uh, the New York Times has a long piece this morning. I, I don't think you wrote it. I'll look and say, but at any rate, that Donald Trump is basically telling Republicans, you're making a mistake and making a big deal about abortion. You got to play it down, right? You got to be more flexible, uh, to Linda's point. You, you, you can't come out for a national ban. You sort of have to fuzz it. You have to allow the exceptions. He's, he's castigating members of his own party, uh, including like Marjorie Taylor Greene, right? for uh, making uh, abortion their number one issue. 
Yeah, and I think, you know, it's because he sees the writing on the wall and has seen this as part of a, a reason why his party has not done so well in past cycles, um, particularly in 2022. But, I mean, abortion is is a huge reason why I think Republicans have struggled, but he also leaves out, of course, the fact that his own rhetoric and drama has played a large role in the party's uh, losses in the last cycle or two. Um, but he didn't offer many details in no. uh, in this conversation around abortion. Um, but I think that he's made it pretty clear that he himself does not want to see the party take up as stringent um, of a stance or on on abortion and want, and take these hard lines, uh, mm-hmm. saying that you know that there should just be no access to the procedure at all because simply is not tenable and also will lose them more voters if that's the message that they bring into 2024. Yeah. Uh, Before we let you go, Maya, I have to ask you, uh, we started talking about the March 4 date here in Washington, D.C. My question is to you, twofold, what do we know about when we might have a trial date in Georgia? And um, what is your take on Governor Kemp there was a mem- members of some members of the legislature who wanted to impeach uh, uh, District Attorney Fannie Willis. Uh, they wanted a special session of the legislature in order to do that. And here is Governor Kemp this week shooting that down big time. In my mind, a special session of the General Assembly was not feasible. The bottom line is that in the state of Georgia, as long as I'm governor, we're going to follow the law and the Constitution regardless of who it helps or harms politically. Not much comfort to Donald Trump. No, and the, the Speaker of the House in Georgia, of the State House, a Republican, also shared that sentiment, just saying, you know, this is not something that's going to happen. And no matter what you might feel about the political ramifications of this, calling a special session to impeach a sitting district attorney is just way too, just a bridge way too far and, and unconstitutional at that. Um so Willis is set an October 20, 2023 date for the trial to begin. Uh, Kemp and others in the state have said that that's just really not going to happen, that it's unrealistic. And I, I, I think that they are right. I'm not, I'm not sure that that's really going to, to take place. It's just too quick of a turnaround um, and too many things going on. But she is trying to get it started as soon as possible. And Kemp, you know, has uh, kind of stayed in line with this stance that, He's going to follow the law and obey the Constitution, and he's not going to, to veer from that. Um, you know, he's not new to these calls for a special session to accomplish kind of odd ends. Uh, right after the 2020 election, many Republicans on the right were pushing him to hold a special session to uh, change the results of the election or reevaluate uh, the, the way that the election was administered. And he, he didn't do that because he knew that the results had been counted multiple times and that you know, while Biden had won by a slim margin, he had still won. And so I feel like this is a similar approach here. While a a number of Republicans in the state are really upset to see Trump and also several, almost two dozen other Republicans in Georgia uh, be prosecuted as part of this RICO case, you know, there's still not a lot that they can actually do within the confines of the law and the Constitution. And I think that's just all that Kemp is saying here. Mm-hmm. Um, he has emerged as a really interesting political actor in the national stage, being a Republican who takes these conservative stances, but does not go so far as um, as as disobeying the law. Uh, 
which in this yeah. party right now is is saying something but you know he's and he's and he probably has his own thoughts and has actually expressed some of them a little bit in a, at a political forum in georgia a few weeks ago about this whole case um not not extensively because he also has been called to testify but i think that him saying that you know that this october 23rd trial date is too far you know he he's trying to set kind of parameters around the politics of everything, but also just the logistics and the constitutionality of it too. Uh, I love that. I think that sums up uh, uh, the pol- uh, the state of our politics for today when you point out that he's a conservative, but he won't go so far as to break the law. Uh, and, th- and that makes him stand out. <laughs> so, so there you go. Uh, a great sum up of this, uh, this big week in uh, politics and other issues. Thank you to our panel. Uh, now it's time just to forget about all about politics and enjoy the Labor Day weekend, because um, it'll start up soon enough afterwards. But before we let you go, um, we always like to ask what's the one story that caught your attention during the week, your favorite story of the week, of all the things you were covering or not covering, you just happened to notice and it stopped you in your tracks. Uh, Linda, start us off, please. So I I often turn to sports. Oh, in in okay. a moment like this, something to make me happy, and <laughs> in this case, it's Simone Biles, oh boy, the gymnast yeah. who, uh, as many will remember, um, dropped out of the Tokyo Olympics two years ago, yeah, um, for mental health reasons, and uh, it was very sad, but uh, applauded by many for, uh, the maturity that it showed and self-awareness on her need to, uh, deal with her, uh, with her issue, you know, internal issues. She had the twisties Mm -hmm. quote unquote. So, uh, on Sunday she broke the 90 year record. Unbelievable. To become the first American gymnast to win eight national all around titles. And she's, She's 26, which in gymnastic terms is elderly, speaking of old people. <laughs> speaking of old people. So, uh, you know, hats off to Simone. Absolutely. It's a wonderful, wonderful, heartwarming story. And, and it also proved, you know, mental health issues, right, are something you can acknowledge and deal with and, and live on, right? Yeah. And f- yeah. Successfully. Yeah. yeah. Beautiful story. Uh, Kirk, how about you? You caught your attention this week. Yeah, I it was a little bit more political nature. I usually do sports when I'm on here, but it was uh, the big article in the Atlantic from earlier this week, "Final Days," which is all about Joe uh, President Biden's uh, decision to pull out uh, of mm. Afghanistan, Afghanistan in the final month of August in 2021. It's uh, an excerpt from uh, Franklin Boyer's uh, upcoming mm-hmm. book, The Last Politician, Inside Joe Biden's White House and the Struggle for America's Future, for the um, free plug there for him. And it's, it's a build as like the first real look at the Biden administration the first two years. And it read like a, a thriller. It was really, really gripping in the details in there. And, you know, I'm, I really think a lot about the, the pullout from Afghanistan and when we were talking about Biden's re-election and everything and how that August was a big inflection point. And he hasn't really cut, recovered from it politically. And this really goes into the personalities and the, the people involved in that decision and the folks who pulled off the, his, the really historic evacuate, frantic evacuation when 
you know, the intelligence turn, the Taliban came in quicker than anybody expected. And they yeah. saved hundreds of thousands of lives there and down the mountain of Afghanistan and kind of dealing with the aftermath of that. It was really, really good. And I'm looking forward to the book coming out yeah. later this year. Yeah, I must say, uh, I was struck by the fact that the, for the first time I can remember, the very first book about the first few years of a presidency were not done by Bob Woodward. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Where was he? I don't know. He's a, he, he, he got beat to the punch here by Frank Four. Uh, and where are we? Maya King, you must have a favorite story as well. I do. I do. This is a story out of Atlanta, actually. Um, it's okay. a, media, a media story about a little bit of, of an uproar at Atlanta Magazine. Um, huh. This is a really interesting story of just how I think national politics has steeped into this magazine that was once sort of written to cater to the wealthy elite of Atlanta, but not necessarily those who are uh, who kind of make the city what it is culturally. But now, after uh, hiring a younger, more racially diverse staff, the editor said that the coverage had gotten too woke, and that's in that's in the editor's. Um, language. And, um, you know, there's been this back and forth between staffers and, uh, and the leadership of the publication over whether to use certain pronouns, what kind of coverage that they're going to include, um, and how, and if it's just too, again, progressive in its coverage. Um, Again, though, thinking of Atlanta, while it is also the center of the political universe, is home to um, you know, it's kind of become the, the, the capital of Black America, Black Hollywood, um, very queer city, has a huge gay population, and is just a big driver of a lot of cultural movements. And so the staffers of the magazine feel that they have to include a lot of this. Anyway, uh, fast forward, now three of six full-time staffers have actually resigned, and the editor-in-chief has announced his plans to retire as well at the end of the year. So there's a bit of an uproar over the direction of the of the magazine and what this means, and if new direction will bring um, new lanes of coverage or not. Yeah, yeah, absolutely interesting story. I hadn't heard anything about that. Thank you, Maya. Well, I got to tell you, my favorite story of the week. You know, I we all complain about, and I think most Americans feel that we've given up on government. It can't get anything done. Never gets anything done. Never does anything to help us. Uh, we saw an exception this week. I mean, uh, since I've been interested in politics, which started when I was in grade school, I've heard promises that someday we're going to do something about the price of prescription drugs, and we're going to have Medicare negotiate with the drug companies for lower drug prices. Promises, promises, promises all those years. Well, damn it, this week, it finally happened. Um, And I think it's just worth noting that once in a while, uh, government can get something done. Uh, and uh, Joe Biden announced that Medicare, uh, that was part of um, one of the bills passed by Congress last year, but now it's going to happen that Medicare will start negotiating drug prices as well. They should uh, for 10 drugs so far. That's the first wave, if you will. There will be a lot more. Uh, it's certainly the right thing to do. It's just long overdue, and it will help millions and millions of seniors meet their monthly 
medical bills as well as all other bills, and I think in the end save a lot of lives. So uh, good for uh, Joe Biden for getting that done, and it's nice to see something positive happen. And it's great to spend the time with today's panel. A big thank you to Linda Feldman, Christian Science Monitor, Maya King, New York Times, Kirk Beto from the National Journal. Thanks to all of you for listening. Hope you have a great Labor Day weekend. Really, make the most of it. Turn your TV radio off. Just turn it all off for the weekend. Uh, but come back on Tuesday. We'll be back with the next podcast of the Bill Press Pod on Tuesday. Talking politics again with Larry Sabato. I should say the great Larry Sabato, head of the Center for Politics at the University of Virginia and uh, the uh, seer behind Sabato's crystal ball. We'll get his take on the whole 24 uh, scene on Tuesday. Have a great weekend, everybody. See you next Tuesday on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.